Hello. Hope you all had a very uh, pleasant and Christ-filled Christmas. Uh, welcome to Reflection. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, a year ago, were we prepared at all for this year that's now coming to an end? Are we prepared at all for what lies ahead? The future is always unexpected, but it can also be exciting if we venture into it with you. And then nothing else is, is more relevant to our state of mind, to our attitude, our spirit. Thank you for promising to be with us always. So whatever comes next, you're prepared for it, and you will prepare us. You will give us the grace to meet everything that enters our life. Oh Lord, one day we all will come to the end of this journey. And when we do, then happiness forever. Until then, may we carry some of the joy of heaven in our hearts now, even when times are tough. So bless us this morning, bless our nation, bless the world. We look forward to the day when your kingdom comes, your will is done, and there's peace on earth as, in, as it is in heaven. And all of this will come eventually through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, well, uh, we're going to begin this morning in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They just go on eating and drinking. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This past year, 2020, this passing year, uh, 2020, was already old by June. And few people are going to regret seeing it in the rearview mirror. At the same time, of course, some of our past is carried forward into the future. But crossing this threshold um, late this week, going from 2020 to 2021, is our chance 
pause to think and decide what we want to take with us and what we want to leave behind. So what is it that we want to leave here and not carry forward? Imagine that you woke up this morning, you grabbed your cup of coffee or tea, you sat down, and instead of your usual morning prayer, oh Lord, I have this to do and that to do, all these things, please help me. What if instead you prayed, Lord Jesus, what do you want to do today? And you decided to let him uh, plan your day for you. I think that Jesus might say something like, let's take a walk, follow me. That's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like for us to follow Jesus for a while through various events in the Gospel of Mark. And as we do, his wisdom, his powerful personality, his deep understanding, his kindness, and his beauty is going to emerge. We will we will see again why we love Jesus. Mark begins his gospel in a way that's unique from Matthew or Luke or John. Uh, what Mark does is he rushes us into the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the word immediately appears no less than 11 times in just this first chapter. It's like there's an emergency and we must hurry forward, that, that everything comes at us really fast. So in a brief description, Mark presents John the Baptist and his ministry. And then in just two paragraphs, we have the baptism of Jesus and his temptations. We're not told what those temptations were as we are in Matthew's gospel and John's gospel. By verse 14, Jesus is already proclaiming his message throughout uh, the area of Galilee. And we've hardly had time to catch our breath, keeping up with him. At least we are told what this story is all about. That's where Mark begins. Before he jumps into the, the action, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we know that going into the story. We know something about Jesus. He's the Messiah and the Son of God. But none of the characters, I should say none of the human characters in Mark's gospel know who Jesus is. And, and that's the point of Mark's story. The various ways that people discover who Jesus is. I, I think that Mark tells his story very, very well. That he 
uses lots of devices to to grab our attention or to set up a, a scene and that it it's an easy book to to see our way through um, and now we know at the beginning that Jesus is Christ the Son of God and we get to see how other people discover that now the reason why I say no human character knows who Jesus is is because there are devilish characters who appear and it is as if they have this this other insight this other worldly insight that we don't have and they not only know who Jesus is and, and they'll say I know who you are the Son of God uh, but they also know various titles for Jesus titles that even people in in Christ's time may not have known applied to the Messiah anyway um, we meet up with Jesus for the first time as he's walking along the shore of the Galilee now the New Testament refers to uh, this body of water as the Sea of Galilee but it's not really a sea it's more like a lake it's a, a big lake it's 13 miles long and, and seven miles wide um, and it is the primary water supply today even for all of Israel the the green perimeter of the lake provides lots of shady areas to picnic or to to rest and it's surrounded by low mountains so that no matter where you stand you have a beautiful view and it's a very scenic backdrop to the lake of Galilee I think Jesus liked going there I think he he enjoyed walking those shores and I like to think that he felt refreshed it's not that it would be so difficult in his time to get back to nature uh, a few hundred feet away from the the largest cities and you'd be in desert or you'd be in in a mountainous area or you'd be near a body of, of water or you'd be reminded of, of nature and its vitality and rhythms but I think that Jesus especially liked this place uh, because we find him there often that's where we're going to visit with him today I have special memories of of being on the lake and around the Lake of Galilee one time when we were staying in a hotel right there next to the water I got up early uh, our first morning uh, while it was still dark and went for a jog and as I was jogging as close to the, the water as I could I I sensed someone or something behind me and I turned around and there was this puppy who had been running behind me and I stopped and when I stopped he stopped I took a step forward to befriend him and he took a step away from me he he didn't trust me he didn't know me so I turned and began jogging again 
and he jogged behind me, only a few feet behind me, all the way to the point where I turned around and then all the way back to the hotel. And when I got to the hotel and turned, he disappeared. The next morning, he was there again. And when I jogged, he followed me. And when I returned to the hotel, he was still following me and then disappeared. I think he was enjoying himself. I mean, obviously he chose to, to jog with me. And perhaps there was some kind of a bond formed. I know that I really liked him and uh, enjoyed his, his surprise company. But it, it, it made, I don't know, it just, it made me feel that God was near, that, that the kingdom of heaven and the human kingdom and the animal kingdom uh, could all be together in one place in enjoying a spot that Jesus loved. Well, when Jesus walked the shore, he had followers too. Only he invited them. He saw two fishermen casting their nets and he said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they dropped what they were doing and they went after Jesus. And not far away were their partners, two other brothers. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And they too left what they were doing and followed Jesus. I imagine their first conversation as they're walking along following Jesus going something like this. The disciples ask, um, sir, where are we going? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. You're going wherever I go, follow me. They ask, what are we going to be doing? He smiles and says, you will be getting to know me. Now that sounds easy enough. He's not asking for anything too difficult, is he? But later on, there will be a test. He will say to them, who do you say that I am? Are they getting to know him? Are they beginning to see what Mark has already told us? He's the Messiah, the Son of God. What did Jesus see in these four fishermen? I, I would venture to guess that whatever it was he saw, you and I would not have seen it if we were there. Okay, this is just personal, and I'm not talking about fly fishing, uh, but to me, nothing is more boring than fishing unless it's watching someone fishing. And I don't see in the disciples the sort of young men that I expect to become spiritual leaders. The, the spiritual leaders, uh, the potential spiritual leaders that I see, uh, I think of, are bright young people who already have this passion for Jesus and they want to do something in his name. Um, they want to present him to the world and they're already studying the scriptures, maybe going to Bible college, uh, 
involved in some kind of ministry. And it just seems natural that God is going to use them in some special way. Jesus doesn't go for that type of person. I mean, if he was looking for that, he would have probably been in Jerusalem and his attention would have been drawn to this young student there uh, by the name of Saul, who was then being instructed by Gamaliel, uh, a well-known teacher in Jerusalem. No, Jesus wasn't even near Jerusalem. He was far away in those northern parts that the people of Jerusalem thought were were almost pagan. They were so far from the ideal of the Pharisee or the Sadducee or the Essene. So what did Jesus see in them? Perhaps he saw potential. Now I don't mean their own potential. I don't mean that he saw a seed or a spark in them that could be you know, fanned into a flame. But rather, I think he saw the potential of what he could do in those lives. And it seems to me that he's also thinking of how using them would glorify him. I often think if God can use me in any small way. Imagine what he could do with someone with talent, someone with much greater skill and depth and, and integrity and whatever else that, that I have in small measure. What could he do some, with someone who's really awesome to begin with? And I think that God says, well, yes, I could do that, but then who would get the glory? Paul said to the Corinthians, look around your Christian community. There aren't many of you who are wealthy, not many who are noble or, or wise, uh, not many who stand out. He says, God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and, and the things that are weak to overwhelm those who are mighty. Well, that gives, us, that gives me hope. It gives us hope, doesn't it? That we can be nobodies and God can use us. Later on in the book of Acts, when God does use Peter and John, the, the people who had attained a position in Israel, noted to be scholars and to be uh, uh, spiritual leaders and to be devout, um, these people looked at James and John, that they, they were not credentialed or educated, and they took note of the fact that they had been with Jesus. In other words, where did these non-traditional, non-licensed, uh, non-educated men get this spiritual insight, get this spiritual power? And they said, ah, oh, these men have been with Jesus. That explains it. So Jesus makes his choice because of the potential he sees, I think. Uh, I knew a man, uh, he was a very kind man. Uh, he was a good man, I liked him. Uh, very rough around the edges when we first met. He was an artist 
and he'd go into the desert looking for alabaster stone. Now, when he found it, though, though it's a very interesting uh, stone, uh, colorful and, and, and jagged, it's still simply a rough, uh, uh, rough rock. Uh, it's still a stone. But when he began to work with it, he would sculpt a figure, a face, something beautiful. He saw the potential of the unhewn stone, and he brought that out. But it's, it's what he saw in it, what, what he placed in it, that he brought out of it himself. That potential was in how he viewed the stone. It wasn't in the stone itself. It could never make itself what he made it. And the same when Jesus saw his first disciples, they could never make themselves what he made them. But he could already see what he was going to do with Peter, that rock, and, and how he would develop him into you know, this historic leader in the church. Jesus looked at these men through the eyes of an artist. It's how he looks at us. Uh, okay. What did Jesus see in them? Another question is, what did these men see in Jesus? I don't think it was their one chance in a lifetime to hit it big, to become well-known or become famous. I think as they were following behind him, they're probably asking each other, are we even going to get paid for this? I doubt that they, that they even knew what Jesus really expected of them. You know, maybe he just needed help in moving a couch or a fridge. So he said, follow me. I need your help. But if Jesus saw potential in them, perhaps they saw an opportunity in him. And that's what made following him irresistible, worth giving up whatever they had before he came along and invited them to become part of his troop. Perhaps they saw in Jesus the possibility of going somewhere that their boats could never take them. I don't know that, you know, they were like people in the typical, or young people in the typical small town America. You know, I can't wait to get out of this place. There's nothing to do here. This isn't the happening place. But, you know, perhaps they, they saw to the end of their lives and said, am I really going to be doing this forever? Is this, is this all that there is? And I think it was the, the personal magnetism, the undeniable charisma, uh, charisma of Jesus that, that drew them instantly to him. Now, the next place where Mark takes us is into a synagogue. So Jesus' disciples are with him in the synagogue, and he's asked 
to teach, which he does, and something happens that people haven't experienced before, and they ask, what new teaching is this? He's not saying the same old things that we've heard so many times, but he's speaking with authority. To me, much preaching is all the same. Well, you know, some, some people are just preaching sermons uh, delivered to past generations, and it's the same thing. Others dress it up. They use clever ways of saying the same thing, but in new language. There are others who sound to me like motivational speakers or salespersons. And then there are, the, of course, always uh, nearby are the Bible thumpers and, and loud preachers who make a lot of noise. And like my dad would say, produce lots of perspiration without much inspiration. Uh, but then there's Jesus and oh, he speaks and it's fresh. People haven't heard this before. And they're so impressed. And if they're impressed when he speaks, the next moment they're even more impressed because in that synagogue was someone who was demon-possessed, and he began screaming out. And of course, I can imagine everyone in the synagogue terrified or stirred up, or, you know, the whole place now is filled with anxiety. But Jesus just speaks to that spirit and drives it out. And now people are saying, and what authority is this? that he commands even the evil spirits, and they go. So now, here's Jesus, here are Jesus' disciples, and they see this, and they may not have known what to expect when they followed Jesus, but I'm sure that now they have a sense of destiny that following him is not going to be just any other trek or tour that they're going to find not only who he is, they're going to find themselves, their destiny in him. So Jesus now has the first members of his team and they have something new to wake up to each morning. A few days later, Jesus was again by the lake shore. A crowd was drawn to him, and so he began to teach them. This is, this is so perfect. Crowds are drawn to Jesus. There's no entertainment. There's no budget. There's no advertising. How did he get them all there? Well, he is the Son of God, and he was healing them, and he was casting out demons, and he was giving them hope and a revelation of the kingdom of God here, now, in him, in his teaching, and coming in, in a fullness that would bring them 
to the reason that God had called them to be his people in the first place. When Jesus finished teaching and the crowd was dismissed, again he walked the shores of the Galilee. This time he saw a tax collector, uh, perhaps charging money for a toll road or something. And Jesus gave him the same invitation he gave the fishermen. He said, follow me. And the tax collector got up and started following Jesus. Now, Jesus is reaching much lower than fishermen to, to nab this guy to be part of his team. Tax collectors were much despised, and not simply because they, uh, they demanded money, but those tax collectors that were collecting money for Rome were, were taking money for Israel's oppressors. Now, not all tax collectors were collecting money for Rome, but the most despised tax collectors were. So Matthew uh, must have been thrilled that Jesus would be interested in him. No holy person had ever shown interest in a, in a tax collector before. He had, he had all kinds of different reactions from the Pharisees um, and the scribes that they would turn away. They'd cross the street to avoid him. They, they would uh, snub him. They would look at him with disgust. So here's this holy person, Jesus, who has this wonderful teaching from God, and he wants Matthew. So Matthew goes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I really would like to introduce some of my friends to you. Would that be all right? And he, he hosts this banquet in his home. Now, who is Matthew going to invite, considering his social position in the community? He's going to invite others like himself. So he has a house full of tax collectors and sinners. That's right. And Jesus is there eating and drinking and conversing with them. Can I say socializing with them? Of course, Jesus can do this because of who he is. He's not going to be influenced by their ways, but they're going to be influenced by him. You know, there is this thing about priests and pastors and preachers um, that people treat us in a special way. Not that we deserve it, and not that we're really that that much different from anyone else. I have known before that when I walk into a hospital to visit someone who knows me, that that person and their family feel more hope when they see me than when their doctor walks into the room. And it's not because of who I am, but what I represent. And, and they are reminded um, Someone is coming to pray for me. Someone who represents God reminds me that God is here with me and I, I'm not going through this alone. I can't stand it when I'm out in public and, and usually I, I try to be nondescript 
Um, but someone finds out I'm a minister and they start making apologies. Oh, please forgive me for my French. And I really don't mind French that much. Uh, if people express themselves honestly, and if what they say makes sense, and if the, the verbiage fits the passion, it's all fine by me. And I'm sure it was all fine by Jesus, though people, once they knew who knew something about him, may have been on their best behavior. At any rate, Jesus hanging out with this type of crowd upset a few people, and they asked his disciples, what is he doing hobnobbing with these sinners? Jesus overheard them, and he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus did not pretend like these sinners were saints, that they were really good after all. You just had to see for yourself. You know what they were. And he came for them. He came as a hope for change, as a hope to be something else. And they knew what they were. And they knew that they could not change themselves the way they needed to. And they saw hope in Jesus. <clears throat> Suppose a, <clears throat> a doctor showed up at your house and you said, what are you doing here, doc? And she said, I've come to heal you. And you say, but I feel perfectly fine. You know, go help someone who's sick. I don't need it. Now, if it were a psychiatrist, I might say, oh, okay, welcome, come on in. Uh, but a medical doctor, you know, I, I make my own appointments when I need them. But, but these people knew that they needed a doctor of the soul, and they found out in Jesus. <clears throat> in perspective, here's how I see what's, what's going on. Jesus is partying with sinners, not because he's like them, but because they were lost, and he came to find them and bring them home. That's exactly what he explains in Luke chapter 15 when he's criticized for eating and drinking with sinners. This scenario, Jesus partying with sinners, is uh, actually fits well with what comes next, um, which is what I read earlier about um, the Pharisees and the disciples of John coming to Jesus and saying, how come we fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus gave two answers. The first answer was, fasting is a response to a specific situation or concerns. And that was not this kind of situation. That Jesus... Jesus' life and presence with his disciples did not present a situation that called for fasting. Instead, 
It called for feasting. Uh, and he describes a joyful celebration like a wedding. And these are his friends, uh, the friends of the bridegroom. And they're not going to fast at, at a moment like this. Um, they would fast. A time would come when they'd lose him. And then they would mourn and fast and pray. But not now. Not while he's with them. Later on, uh, Jesus is going to tell a parable in which he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he invited all sorts of people. He ended up just grabbing people off the street and bringing them in, those sinners. Anthony Campolo uh, wrote a book that he titled, The Kingdom of God is a Party. And the, the first, I think it's the first story in that book uh, that the title uh, is taken from is a, is a wonderful story of how he threw a party for a prostitute. The kingdom of God is a party where sinners are invited. Remember when the prodigal son, the, that sinful son came home? What did his father do? He threw a party for him. That which was lost has been found. My son who is dead is alive. And so it's always, it's always celebration around Jesus, the Savior, who's come for all of God's lost children, people who could not find their way home, people who did not think they'd be accepted if they turned and went home, people who didn't, did not have the energy to, to come home. Jesus brings them home. He carries the sheep in his arms, and he brings them home where they belong. The, the second answer to their question, Jesus is saying basically the old system, the old religious system, cannot accommodate this new work of God's presence. The old structures cannot accommodate the effervescence that's what it is. It's the effervescence of Jesus' ministry, the life of the Spirit. Jesus says, I can't pour this into the old system. It would tear the system apart and all the effervescence would be lost. No, we need a new structure and, and that's what I'm bringing. So, so you don't have to bring those old regulations of a weekly fast into this new system. We're going to we're going to party with sinners as they come to faith, as as they come home where they belong. Weeks later, Jesus is again walking along the water's edge at the Sea of Galilee. And again crowd gathers to hear him. This time, so many people that they back, they, they practically back him into the water. So he climbs into a boat, moves offshore just a little bit, and he tells them stories. Stories of the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. It's like seed that falls into soil. And there are four different soils. Three of them are vulnerable. And we read about their vulnerabilities. And he tells about 
uh, mustard seed being so small but growing into a large plant, about a little bit of leaven that a woman works into some dough, um, some bread dough, and it, it causes the whole thing to rise. Uh, he just tells them homey stories that they all can understand. But to me, there's something idyllic, almost romantic, about Jesus sitting in a boat, uh, teaching as he's gently rocked by the waters of the serene lake. Isn't that picturesque? Isn't that lovely? And how easy it would be to sit there and to listen to his voice, allowing our imaginations to, to run away with the words that he speaks, visualizing images of the stories that he tells. There are certain places that are ideal for contemplation and prayer and listening and receiving new insights. Blessed are you if you have found such places and you're wise enough to frequent them so that you can enjoy what Jesus does for you there. Okay, we've got to wrap this up. So whenever I read Mark and I start with that, that first sentence, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, or the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it always feels to me like I'm at the beginning, again, the beginning of my relationship with Jesus, the, the beginning of getting to know him, the beginning of my walk with him and following him, that he has given me once again this opportunity for a beginning. It's like something new is happening to me and within me. I've mentioned Hannah Arendt a few times. Uh, I'm reading her book, The Human Condition. I'm almost through with it, so you can be happy. I'll stop quoting her. But she attempted to stress the importance of human action. Uh, this is one of the major themes of her book. And that human action introduces something new into the world. And, and not just human action, but humans themselves. It is the nature of beginning that something new is started which cannot be expected from whatever may have happened before. You see, there wouldn't be a beginning if it weren't new. Uh, if it was just a change in something already going on, then it wouldn't be a beginning. It would be a transition. It would be a movement. But the, begin the beginning of something is always the beginning of something new. The new always happens against the overwhelming odds of statistical laws and their probability. The new always appears in the guise of a miracle. You know, where did this come from? 
And this again is possible only because each person is unique, so that with each birth, something uniquely new comes into the world. With your birth, something uniquely new came into the world. She also says that each individual is a unique, unexchangeable, and unrepeatable entity. There is only one you. There will never be another. And you are unique in your contribution to the world. No one will ever occupy the place that you're in. No one will ever repeat the life that you've lived. And no one else will do for God what he has you do for him. It will happen only in your lifetime, in all the history of humankind. This next week, we approach an end and a beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in your life and in my life. And it's only new if we don't repeat last year. If we don't repeat the same things that stumbled us last year. How will we live out our uniqueness, our newness? Where is this beginning going to take us? How will we achieve our potential in a new way? By following Jesus. Because he is the artist who sees that potential in you and in me. And so, what does this year hold in store for us? Paul addressed the Galatians as, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here's this birth of a new person as Christ is formed in you. And it's not so much that you are to become Jesus Christ. It's more like you're to become your new self, your true self, what Jesus sees when he looks at you, when he sees what he can make of you. And so following him, he'll bring out the potential that his eyes place in us. Even as we follow him, we come to find out who he is. He helps us to come, come to find out who we are. This year, you and I will know ourselves better and we'll know each other better as together we become those followers of our Lord. As we become Team Jesus. And now may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I love you. Be good. Be kind to yourselves and others. And, and know that Jesus is going to be there for you to follow him. And that he expects to, to turn around and to see your smiling face. And that's where we end today. See you next week. Bye.